Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York Governor Kathy Hochul wants to ban flavored cigarettes, including menthol cigarettes, and raise taxes by $1 on a pack of cigarettes as part of her budget plan. But convenience store owners say those actions would lead to more tobacco products bought and sold on the black market. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. The state's convenience store owners, as well as wholesalers and distributors, say raising taxes on tobacco to $5.35 for a pack of cigarettes, the highest rate in the nation, and banning flavored cigarettes will have unintended consequences. New York Association of Convenience Store Owners Kent Sopris says his 13,000 members could lose $1 billion in revenue a year if the proposals are approved by the state legislature. He predicts some stores will go out of business. There would be jobs lost for sure, and some stores only sell flavored tobacco products. They're just very popular. Uh, If you take them away, those entire stores will close down. David Schwartz with the New York State Association of Wholesale Marketers and Distributors says the illegal tobacco trade coming in from other states is at epidemic levels. And he says some law enforcement groups estimate that over 50 percent of all cigarettes sold in New York City come from the black market. He says the ban in new taxes will only make things worse. You cannot raise a tax that high and not close down the marketplace. You can't build a wall around New York and expect illegal products not to flow in through this illegal market. So what's going to happen? The the high taxes are bad enough, and we need to do something about that immediately to stop stop the hemorrhaging. But a menthol ban, a menthol cigarette ban is going to be a disaster for New York. The opponents say previous attempts at prohibition haven't worked. The state banned flavored nicotine vaping products in 2019, and they say that has led to an increase of black market sales. Sopra says there's also a disconnect between New York's policies and its emerging legal cannabis sales market, where numerous flavored products are offered, and the attempt to end flavored tobacco cigarettes. Clearly there's a contradiction between banning flavored tobacco and and allowing flavored cannabis. A poll by Siena College released February 27th finds most New Yorkers support the proposed tax increase and the ban of flavored cigarettes. The American Cancer Society, whose members also came to the Capitol to lobby on tobacco policy, say the proposals would help more New Yorkers quit smoking and avoid related diseases and death. Michael DeVoli, director of governmental relations with the group's Cancer Action Network, says the claims by the convenience store owners and tobacco distributors don't hold water. He says when the state banned indoor smoking in public places in the 1990s, bars and restaurants warned that they too would go out of business. And he says that didn't happen. They said if you get rid of smoking from bars and restaurants, we're all going to go out of business. We're all going to go bankrupt. Well, guess what? Newsflash. Restaurant bar industry, even with the pandemic, is thriving. And so we cannot deny the simple fact that that argument is simple fear-mongering. Devoli says the proposals won't affect the existing black market. There has always been an illicit market 
there always will be an illicit market. He says despite what opponents say, the vast majority of cigarette sales in New York are from legal retailers, and they generate $1 billion in tax revenue each year. The Cancer Society has its own issues with the state's cigarette taxation policies. They say while New York has collected billions of dollars over the years from tobacco taxes, very little of that goes into smoking cessation and other health-related programs. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. The appellate division of the state Supreme Court has upheld the dismissal of the city of Albany's good cause eviction law. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas with more. Albany's good cause eviction law was approved during the pandemic, a time of uncertainty for renters. Under the statute, each tenant in the city would be entitled to a renewal lease and protection against annual rent increases of more than 5%. On the grounds that it conflicted with existing state laws, Judge Christina Reba overturned Albany's law in June 2022. The city appealed her ruling, and a mid-level court ruled to allow the law to remain in place during the appeals process. Now the court has ruled that only the state can pass good cause. Advocates called a virtual press conference Thursday. United Tenants of Albany's Kenyon Ryan so really what this ruling does is um, accentuates the urgency and need for the state to do their job. Anna Leek rents an apartment in the city of Albany. She says tenants are frightened as they now face an uncertain future. This is very emotional for me as I speak for myself and for the elderly tenants and for the retired tenants that are living here and what they are facing, demand letters, they have to come up with a large amount of money to move out and they're unfortunately unable to because most building management places they want three times the rent you have to pay for application fees so unfortunately they're stuck in this situation it is not uncommon for albany landlords to ask for a deposit plus the first month's rent in advance when renting to new tenants who may also be subject to a credit check 11th ward common counselor alfredo Valeron is also a landlord. We passed a bill that I truly feel was fair, that listened to many of the landlord's concerns, that heard many of the tenants' concerns, and addressed them fairly. Uh, so today's ruling is very disappointing. Uh, it's disappointing because I know how vulnerable now this leaves our neighbors. Bleaker Terrace Tenants Association Secretary Lori Butrago is an Albany tenant at Capitol Crossings. We have some tenants, say 35 tenants currently that live at um, Capitol Crossings that have been there 20 plus years, myself included. And we are now being forced out of our homes based on these rent hikes. This is a form of gentrification. I have said this before, and I will say it again, that I have never witnessed in my life. And we depended on this tenant protection. We depended on it so much that we put our faces on the forefront of it only for the city to say it's not their problem. It is unfortunate, it is inconsiderate, and a lot of people are gonna end up in shelter and homeless, which is going to cost the city that much more money. State Assembly Housing Chair Linda Rosenthal, a Democrat, represents New York City's Upper West Side and parts of Manhattan. She says her landlord tried to evict her two years ago. She took a poke at Governor Kathy Hochul's housing initiative. We see the governor said we need 800,000 new units. Well, you know what? If you maintain people in current units, 
that's more effective than building into the future. We have people now who need help. And that's why the legislature is going to help you. And we will push this through. Fellow New York City Democrat Brian Kavanaugh is chair of the Senate Housing Committee. I am more committed than ever to making sure that we enact good cost protections throughout the state. A spokesperson for Democratic Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan responded to a request for comment via email saying, quote, we are very disappointed by the appellate division's decision. We just received a copy of the decision and are reviewing our options. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok spoke with New York State Senator James Scoofus, chair of the Senate Investigations and Government Operations Committee, about how his committee makes decisions about what to investigate. Oftentimes, it's uh, issues that we we hear about from folks like you or read about in the newspaper that uh, sort of cut off the tip of the iceberg on an issue that we think needs some further delving into. Sometimes it comes from constituents. Sometimes it comes from my experiences dealing with agencies or stakeholders, local or, or statewide. And so it, it comes from a variety of different places. Uh, we don't just dream up these things. These are real I lived experiences, whether it be from the media, from me, from constituents, uh, but we get them from a whole different bunch of places. So tell me about the IDAs. What are they and why are you investigating? Every county in the state has an IDA and many counties have municipalities within them that also have IDAs, which in and of itself is a major problem. And IDA stands for? Industrial Development Agencies. Go ahead. And these are the groups that they're authorized through state law from decades ago that are tasked with incentivizing new companies or existing companies that are looking to expand, to, to grow. And they're supposed to be looking out for taxpayers as their top priority. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, yes, incentives play an important role. Some projects that are worthwhile projects need incentives to happen. But that speaks to the but-for clause of economic development. But for this incentive, the project would not happen. Mm. And, and what we have found, what I have found consistently – uh, across almost every IDA uh, that I've looked at in the state is that they completely disregard that but-for provision of economic development, which is the safeguard for taxpayers in New York State. Of course, taxpayers want to see good economic development. Of course, taxpayers want to see good, worthwhile businesses coming into their community that contribute uh, to the local economy and, and create jobs. But if the project's going to happen anyway without the incentive, taxpayers don't want to be subsidizing those efforts. And so, so that's why we're taking a hard look at IDAs right now is because they seem to have thrown out that cornerstone of economic development out the window. Now, the Democrats are in charge of the Senate, so therefore you're the chairman of this committee. Are you finding much pushback? 
On this issue, it's interesting. So New York City, the, f- the full five boroughs, they have one IDA. In fact, uh, that's how the IDA should be set up. They should be set up regionally. I have a bill to do this, where for every region of the state, there ought to be one IDA. Hudson Valley gets one. Long Island gets one. Western New York gets one. That way, you don't have every county, all these cities and municipalities competing against one another for the same jobs, the same companies, in a race to the bottom within that region. And so New York City members, my colleagues in the majority, they're not quite as engaged on IDA uh, activity and impropriety because in in some ways their setup is more advantageous and works well compared to the rest of the state. Uh, Once you leave the city, a lot of my colleagues are interested in this issue. They want to get it right. They understand that their taxpayers are getting ripped off. And so uh, this has become a uh, – one of many, many issues, of course that we're talking about in the budget and certainly outside the budget legislatively. That's New York State Senator James Skoufis speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartong. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The number of pregnant people and postpartum parents in the U.S. who died from an opioid overdose grew by over 80 percent in the past six years, according to a recent study. Stigma, barriers to care, and a lack of resources have put pregnant people and new parents with opioid use disorder at risk. However, some local organizations in upstate New York are trying to help. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, WSKG's Phoebe Taylor-Vuolo has more. Okay, this is our parent pantry. So, wall of diapers. We have them organized by size from newborn to... Um, Julia Reichel runs the neonatal abstinence program at Margaretville Hospital in Delaware County. The program offers recovery coaching, postpartum support, and a parent pantry. The pantry has baby supplies and self-care products for parents. Birth is war, man. This is a perennial cold pack. If you've just given birth to a baby, this is a really, really nice cold compress you can put on your nether regions that will actually relieve some of the pain and swelling. And if you've had an episiotomy... Pretty much anyone can come here for supplies. There's formula, bottles, and condoms. And as a harm reduction program, they also want to help people who use drugs avoid fatal overdose. So there's Narcan and fentanyl test strips. Reichel says they're working to build trust. We want to be there giving you what you need with no strings attached, because so few programs don't have strings attached. So, you know, actually giving you what you need without really forcing you to do any hoop jumping. Reichel says even though the gold standard for opioid use disorder treatment is medication, Pregnant patients often have to fight to access it. She's worked with women who were forced to go through dangerous opioid withdrawal while pregnant. Jane Fairbairn is the program's wellness coordinator. She's worked with pregnant women all over Delaware County. She says being in recovery is not a requirement to get diapers or formula. The main thing is making sure people are safe. I have given Narcan to people in the same bag with diapers. Hoped prayed that they're not going to need it. But, you know, in the, in the absence of safety is real danger. 
Fairbairn says many of the parents she works with are terrified of losing custody of their children, especially if they're actively using. She says offering baby supplies is just one way to reduce harm by giving them some autonomy and hope. I can help with the diapers and the bottles and the formula and the baby clothes and you know, just try to kind of draw people in and just and also just illustrate for people in a material way that they matter and that they are good people. The program in Margaretville is funded by a grant that ends in September, but Rachel says she's hoping they can get more funding. Stephen Patrick heads Vanderbilt University's Center for Child Health Policy in Tennessee. He also runs a treatment program there for pregnant women with opioid use disorder. Patrick says the number one fear he hears from patients with substance use disorder is that their children could be taken away. He recalls one patient's experience during her first ultrasound. And she was in her ultrasound, and the sonographer said to her, have you found a family for your baby yet? And she goes, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, people who use drugs never end up with their babies. Patrick says that patient ultimately found treatment, and she and her baby are thriving. He says having substance use disorder doesn't automatically equate to child neglect or abuse. It's like any other chronic illness or mental health issue, he says, and it can be treated. But finding care and treatment can be difficult for pregnant women, and he says that could be contributing to the growth in overdose rates. That's why in 2019, Patrick, along with some colleagues, conducted what's called a secret shopper study. The researchers found that women who posed as pregnant were less likely to get an appointment at outpatient treatment clinics. Oftentimes what pregnant women face is the added stigma of, quote, how could you do this to your baby? He says part of the problem is a gap in knowledge and training. OBGYNs aren't always familiar with opioid use disorder treatment, and treatment providers aren't always familiar with pregnancy care. Patrick says there's also a lot of misinformation about prescribing medications for opioid use disorder to pregnant patients. Some providers are afraid of causing opioid dependence and then withdrawal in newborns. But he points out neonatal opioid withdrawal is treatable and temporary. He says it can be riskier to deny pregnant patients the medication that treats withdrawal. What I'm worried about are the babies born very preterm or the babies with really complex birth defects. It's not drug withdrawal. It's not complicated to treat. It is um, time limited. It only happens for a period of time where you treat it and then the baby goes home. Patrick worked for a year advising the federal government on this particular issue. The Biden administration has signaled a commitment to helping pregnant and postpartum women with opioid use disorder by addressing stigma and increasing access to medication treatment. That's WSKG's Phoebe Taylor-Vuolo reporting for the Legislative Gazette. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The executive director of the Adirondack Council plans to leave the post. Willie Janeway took the helm of the largest Adirondack Park Agency organization in 2013, and he says it's the right time for a transition. Janeway spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley. 
The Adirondack Council and I have had a great 10 years. We've accomplished a lot working with a lot of partners. We did a plan and set some objectives 10 years ago. We have grown the constituency and the diversity of the constituency of folks engaged. You, WAMC, with your broad listenership, has helped us engage more people. And as we look forward and set new goals, it's a good time. The council is strong, good time for me to step back and for others to step up. Did you have a vision in mind when you started at the Adirondack Council 10 years ago? The board and I definitely had a vision, and we have realized a lot of that. Um, And fundamental to that was expanding and diversifying the constituency of people who can connect to and participate in advocating for the preservation of this threatened global treasure. It's the largest intact temperate deciduous forest in the world, the largest park in the contiguous United States. It's a crown jewel of New York's park system. And we worked with a lot of others to enhance its protections. And I also had a vision, as did others, of elevating awareness of shortcomings in existing protections. And we've made a lot of progress there, helping everyone understand how much more work still does need to be done. Along those lines, you pushed for what's called Vision 2050, uh, a 30-year plan for the park. And I believe the council has adopted uh, the first three- to five-year part of that plan. How much of that do you believe will be successful? I think we will be successful ultimately in all of that. The question is whether or not we can do that fast enough, given the growing threats of climate change and overcutting and over-tourism. We have these opportunities in front of us right now. Vision 2050 identified the needs to better manage the park, protect the environment, and also enhance the human communities. There's opportunity to do all of that. The council is well positioned to lead in some areas and other partner organizations are well positioned to lead in other areas. And together that Adirondack common ground that we found in the past can be found again going forward. So Vision 2050 really is a lens into the future that we can all look through and use as a guide and the Adirondack Council intends to use it as a guide looking forward. Well, how flexible is it? You mentioned things like climate change that in itself changes things. So how flexible is the Vision 2050 that you helped craft? One of the great strengths of Vision 2050, and it was a team effort, shout out to Julia Gorn, who we hired as the director of the Vision 2050 project. And it is incredibly flexible and incredibly visionary, and the council is very strong with others at being both visionary and pragmatic, aspire to change systems and change what is possible, while also working in the Capitol in Albany and Washington to achieve what is possible. The council adopted the first three to five years of this. Is that part of the reason to maintain that flexibility in the vision as you move forward? One of the reasons this is a good time for a transition path for me to step back, not retire, but to step back and let others step forward is The council's in a great position. We have Vision 2050. We have a strategic plan. We've got an incredible staff. We have strong partners. It's a really good time to move forward on the next phase. And that next phase, like a relay race, is a good time for me to pass the baton to others. The council board, in the announcement that you would step back, lists a number of changes and accomplishments uh, that occurred during your tenure tenure, including things like growth as an organization in both staff and finances, new partnerships that you've managed to bring to the council. 
legislation like new boat inspection laws. You helped with the creation of the Adirondack Diversity Initiative. What are some of the key accomplishments that you look at during your 10 years at the council? Oh, Pat, I, I appreciate the, the praise from the board and others to me, but this is not about me. This is a team. I have done nothing by myself. I've had the good fortune of working with an incredible group of people. We've accomplished a lot of different things. A couple of things, two of the things that really stand out to me that this incredible team have done is, number one, expanding and diversifying the constituency of people who are engaged in working to preserve the Adirondacks, the clean water and the wilderness, and help the communities thrive. And at the same time, awareness of the opportunity to create 21st century new Adirondack Park Agency looking forward that does a better job of addressing current threats and helping humans and nature thrive together. This is an example for the world. And those are two of the things that I have this incredible pride for what the team and I have accomplished, expanding the constituency and setting a foundation for further growth and change going forward. You mentioned that you're stepping back. Are there things that you will still continue to do with the Adirondack Council? My focus for the next six months is to do everything I can to help the council transition be smooth and continue the growth and forward trajectory of the council. Um, then I am prioritizing some time for my family. And then since I'm not retiring, I will be back on the playing field. My family's been plugged into the Adirondacks since the 1800s, and I don't imagine that the family or I will ever unplug, but I'm going to take a break, and we'll see what comes next. The deputy executive director will step in as acting executive director. Do you have any idea if there's any folks that the board has in mind for your replacement? I made my resignation effective September 15th to provide for and support a smooth transition. Rocky Aguirre has been in the deputy executive director position for more than a year, has a lifetime of experience on conservation and equity and years in the Adirondacks. So he will transition into doing more in an acting executive director capacity as I transition myself out. And I expect the board will do a national search, and Rocky may well be a candidate for that. And I'm sure the organization will emerge stronger than ever moving forward. Willie Janeway previously worked for the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, the Nature Conservancy of New York, the Hudson Valley Greenway Conservancy, and the Adirondack Mountain Club. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2309. Or just listen online at wamc.org. Or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.